This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Well, you know, my ancestors were slaves for centuries and they never gave up, you know? And I think for me, ancestor practice has been a foundation for me to give me perspective about what's happening, that there is a way to continue Mm. There's a way to live through what you may consider hell every day, mm. but you never lose yourself. Like, and what if you if that was the lock and what would the key be? Uh, you know, to to not losing. Well, it's you know it's remembering joy, right? But not just remembering joy; it's remembering the ultimate. Mm-hmm. Like when when we so the so the the risk here is getting swallowed by the relative. When you get consumed by the relative, the relative will seem just really rigid. Yeah. Like there's a rigidity to the relative, right? That's why the relative can't be held without the ultimate. It can't be the ultimate. It can't be the ultimate refuge. Even if you tidy it up, it still can't be the ultimate refuge. Right, yeah. Because, you know, the relative is an expression of the absolute. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast with David Nickturn on the Be Here Now Network. My name is Michael Kammers, your host and monologist. All of us here at Be Here Now and Dharma Moon sincerely hope this podcast finds you as well as can be, and we are happy that you are joining us. Here at CSM, our guide, senior Buddhist teacher, musician, and entrepreneur David Nickturn discusses how to lead an integrated life involving spiritual practice, creative expression, and right livelihood with our guests who embody and manifest these principles in their own life. And in this episode, we are super fortunate to have Buddhist minister, author, activist, yoga instructor, authorized Lama, and queen, Lama Rod Owens. Lama Rod is playing an important role in the diversification of Dharma in the West, and since his activities as a teacher have reached deeply into our culture, he may not need an introduction. However, I will provide some brief biographical information to set the table for our upcoming conversation. Lama Rod Owens is an author, activist, and authorized Lama in the Kagyu School of Tibetan Buddhism. Lama Rod is the co-founder of Bhumi Sparsha, a Buddhist tantric practice and study community. 
He holds a Master of Divinity degree in Buddhist studies from Harvard Divinity School, where he focused on the intersection of social change, identity, and spiritual practice. He is the author of Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger, and a co-author of Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation, which explores race in the context of American Buddhist communities. Lama Rod has been a teacher with the Daishin Zen Buddhist Temple, the Urban Yoga Foundation, Inward Bound Mindfulness Education, a visiting teacher with Natural Dharma Fellowship, and the Brooklyn Zen Center. If you'd like to learn more and connect with Lama Rod, head over to his website, lamarod.com. Follow him on Instagram and be sure to sign up for his mailing list to stay informed of his teaching schedule, which includes a weekly online medicine Buddha practice on Monday nights. On a personal note, I highly encourage listeners to engage with Lama Rod's work. For me, as an American practitioner in a cisgendered, heteronormative, Caucasian body, engaging with Lama Rod has helped me in the continual process of opening more fully to the truth of how our systems continue to harm marginalized communities of color, varying sexual orientation, and gender. To see my relationship within those systems, how those systems live within me, and to begin my own process of healing while shifting my actions. I consider both of his books required reading for practitioners. Okay, before we move into the episode, we have a couple of exciting announcements. Dharma Moon has the next round of our world-class 100-hour mindfulness meditation teacher training coming up. It's a great way to deepen your practice and community with a senior teacher, one-to-one mentorship, and in a safe, brave space of community with like-minded practitioners. We have two info sessions coming up with special guests whom attendees on Zoom will have the unique opportunity to have a Q&A with. On Wednesday, August 31st, we have an info session with Duncan Trussell, comedian, podcast host, and creator of the acclaimed Netflix animated show, The Midnight Gospel. On September 14th, our special guest is Professor Robert Thurman, Buddhist scholar, author, and co-founder of Tibet House U.S., the cultural center of His Holiness the Dalai Lama in the U.S. And if you are like my former self and enjoy listening to spiritual podcasts where people discuss meditation and dharma, but you don't have a practice yet, join us at Dharma Moon and let's all learn how to practice together for the benefit of all sentient beings. So please head over to dharmamoon.com and join us at a program soon. And now, the last order of business. Speaking of podcasts about spirituality, head over to BeHereNowNetwork.com, the incredible podcast network that we are fortunate to be a small part of, and explore the ever-expanding library of podcasts transmitting knowledge and experience from the world's wisdom traditions. Thank you to everyone at Be Here Now Network for continuing Ram Dass's legacy and for having us on the network. Okay, everyone, as you can hear, the underscoring has ended, which makes this the longest intro ever in CSM history. Thank you for your patience, and it is now our great pleasure to share with you episode number 37 of the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast, Absolute and Relative Truth with Lama Rod Owens. Okay, so welcome back to Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast. Very special guest today, Lama Rod Owens, who um, has reached out into the zeitgeist in a very powerful way these days, as as far as um, I can see. And it spans a 
an arc of a very seriously classical Buddhist training, you know, uh, and then right into the sort of middle of the current conversations that are going on in, uh, cr- across the world, but very much in the United States. So I want to leave us room to cover however you want to take that. But I thought um, that I would maybe just launch with this Buddhist notion, we could take it from there, of the absolute and relative truth, mm-hmm. and, and in particular, the inseparability of that. So that comes from our common heritage as Buddhist students mm-hmm. and, you know, and anywhere you wanted to take that, um, but welcome, Lamarad. It's it's really great to have you. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah, you. thanks for having me on. So, could you maybe people are not familiar with that notion a little mm-hmm. bit, and just um, is it possible for you to talk about it just a little bit to set the stage? Yes, yes, yeah. You know, this notion of absolute and relative is this idea is echoed in many spiritual traditions. You know, I would say even all, you know, Um, I think from the very early times of like human civilization and the development of reason and logic, you know, I think there's always been this connection to the, the, I would say the multiple ways in which reality reveals itself, right? And I think that's been interwoven into really ancient traditions of spiritual practice, right? But I wouldn't even call it spiritual practice. I would just call it living and life. I think <laughs> early civilizations were just living, yeah. you know, into this truth. You know, it mm-hmm. wasn't this and that. It was just what it was, right? And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, we find ourselves now really in a binary, you know, where we're like, okay, this is relative, mm-hmm. this is absolute, and it's hard for us to bring these two extreme views together, you know. For me, it was Buddhism that helped me to really understand, mm-hmm. you know, what this was, particularly the Heart Sutra, yeah, right? which is, you know, one of my, it's, it's my favorite, actually, teaching of the Buddha. I, I call it my core sutra, mm. right? Because I think it informs everything that I do because I'm, I have been so, I've been so interested in how to get free from suffering, mm. you know? And I've really been sensitive to the suffering of the relative, right? And of course I grew up And, you know, a Black Southern community where, you know, we were so close to our suffering, Mm. you know, in terms of the impact of systematic racism, right? And... Where did you grow up exactly? North Georgia. Oh, Georgia. Wow. Yeah, North Georgia. I always say it's... Which is a hotbed right now, right? I mean, there's a lot of energy in Georgia right now. Well, I think Georgia is in transition. Yeah, okay. You know, I tell people that I grew up in deliverance country because it's kind of <laughs> actually where I grew up was, you know, where deliverance was shot. So, wow. I mean, that's where I grew up. And I was like, there's got to be more than this. <laughs> there has to be more um, than what I'm experiencing. And it has to be more than what my experience, my community is experiencing. So, you know, that got me into activism, which was really deeply tuned to the relative. I wanted to transform the relative world. I wanted, I wanted to change systems and institutions, right? And I wanted to be free. I wanted my community to be free. I wanted all of us to be free and happy, right? And then when I came into Buddhism, Buddhism was like, well, you know, there's also this ultimate reality, right? That we can actually join with 
the work of being in the relative. And I just feel so excited by that. Yeah. Right. You know, and then over time, you know, of course, getting introduced to the heart sutra, of course, and then going through formal training um, as a Lama. Right. Did you get into the heart sutra through through the Tibetan Buddhist portal yes. or were you not, you weren't studying Zen or anything else at no. that point. You, no. you went right for Tibetan Buddhism when you started getting into Buddhism. Exactly. Like a bee. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, when I, you know, it was, it, it chose me. It found me before I knew I'd been found, you know, because when I became interested in the Buddhism, I was surrounded by Tibetan Buddhists. You know, just by circumstance. Yep. Yeah. I, I lived in a community um, where most people were practicing Buddhism. Actually, most people were actually students of uh, Lama Surya Das. Uh huh. Oh, okay. Right. So I, I kind of got tied. I was already tied in in the community, but when I became interested in, med- in meditation initially, then Buddhism, then I was just like already plugged in to that community, you know. But I wouldn't have chosen anything else mm-hmm. because Tibetan Buddhism or Tantric Buddhism, as I call it now. It just met the 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 really the the intensity of yeah. what I was experiencing. So you had an auspicious kind of uh, connection. Do you know how Allen Ginsberg met Trungpa Rinpoche? I think I've heard the story, but remind me. They were both trying to get a cab. In New York That's and right. They, they hailed the same taxi <laughs> and then decided to share it. That's uh, right. Yeah. You know, and people, yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds like you had some of that, like just like landing where you uh, kind of naturally could connect yeah. without, without a lot of searching. It, it found you. That's what you're saying. That's kind of yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, you know, I've kind of had this life where, you know, Dharma has always been there. I've always been a Dharma practitioner, even before I knew. Were you raised Christian though in the beginning? I was. Yeah, I was raised in the black church, and even growing up in Christianity, I just never understood it. I never got it. Like it just didn't seem complex enough. Uh huh. Okay. Right, and I felt that there were a lot of excuses being made about really, and this is you know coming from a young person from in my adolescent years, I just felt like there were a lot of excuses being made about the brutality of God. No, <laughs> and I and growing uh, up black and getting this message yeah. that I'm supposed to suffer and that my suffering will open this experience to heaven, I just got kind of got really frustrated with that because I looked yeah. around and I saw other people who didn't seem to be suffering but seemed to be enjoying heaven <laughs> all <laughs> the same, you know. And I just naturally rejected that. I just yeah. thought there had to be something more complex yeah. right and then when yes. i met tibetan buddhism like tibetan buddhism with this like deep rich mythology it's like very apparent powerful magic right and such an indigeneity focus mm-hmm. you know i just i felt like i was meeting something that finally began to reflect yeah it's funny you're saying this because I I got my antenna out in in, in the world these days because I'm I'm like everybody else just trying to figure out what the heck's yeah. going on you know, mm-hmm. but one of the things I've stumbled into like when I can't sleep at night sometimes I just do Instagram reels yeah just for like half an hour <laughs> and I stumbled across they're usually just like it's like flipping through the oh, yeah. you know, but I stumbled across 
the these gospel singers called Maverick City Choir. Mm. Have you ever heard of them? I haven't. I might have to like do a little bit of a reverse. It's kind of a newer uh, and very multifaceted and very contemporary, but right from the roots of it. And I just started looking up everything they were doing. So I'll send you a link to it. You yeah, might. absolutely. Yeah. It's not like they, I get what you're saying. It's not it's not like they're, um, you know, it's not nuanced in the way that you're, you're referring to. But there's something new about it. Yeah. The vibe is has a new it, right. and it's more coherent with, with the kind of things that we're talking about, just right. opening the heart, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and the storyline is not really doesn't seem to be the central point of it. So anyhow, OK, so to continue, you were um, you were finding your way into Buddhism and then you just got deeper and deeper. Is that what happened? You, you, you went down the rabbit hole, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I it was a situation where when I signed up. I was yeah. signing up for the long haul. Like I wasn't, uh-huh. I wasn't just signing up and saying, "Oh, I'm going to see how this goes." Oh, like I knew when I decided to commit to the path, which and you know, at the at back then it was first committing to the sangha, mm-hmm. committing to the teachers, committing to practice. But when I knew when I was doing that, I knew that this would this was it. You know, mm-hmm. so I go to my first 10-day intensive retreat. This is before taking refuge. This is before Bodhisattva vow. Like, this is before anyone really knew me in the Sangha, right? No, I go there, and I'm already like, okay, I'm going to be a teacher. Like, that's how intense it was. You know, so I'm sitting with some of the teachers, the lamas, you know, on the retreat, and they're like, well, you know, maybe it's good first to take refuge and then (laughs) to... To do nundro practice, preliminary practices, and to do, you know, some reading, you know, which I already was doing reading, right. you know, but I I came into that and it really shocked some of the long-term practitioners in my early community because some of them had been doing this for decades, mm. you know, and hadn't had that spark of yeah. like wanting to become a llama. Mm. go into three-year retreat and just go deeper they just, they just so they saw me as kind of maybe fanatical oh you know uh-huh. but I, mean, I think some people were you know deeply inspired but i think you know in general i think people thought oh you know you're just like fascinated you're you know infatuated with this little burn off but in fact it got actually stronger <laughs> you know and everything sped up Right. You know, um, and again, I just think that that's just an expression of just past lives of practice like that. You yeah. know, Buddhism wasn't new. For yeah. me, you know, and and another thing that suggests, you know, that this wasn't new is that, like, I just find Buddhist philosophy just easy. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't struggle with mm-hmm. philosophy like I I in, have this intuitive understanding. It's um, familiar. Yeah, it's extremely familiar, yeah. right? It's so familiar that I can retranslate it. Right? Yes, I can just I can I can rethink the ways I can I can rethink Dharma in a way yeah. that feels more appropriate for the times, and that's you know kind of what I specialize in. You know, son Ethan. Who, mm-hmm. I don't know if you met Ethan or not, but. Um, he gave this one talk, which was sort of uh, when the profound treasury, you know, the Trunk Rinpoche uh, seminary talks were, were, were put out. 
uh, he was part of a panel with the editors, and he said, well, this was the translation. Now our job is to translate the translation. Yeah. That's and, and that's what you're talking about. You're talking about bringing it out to people where they can grab it, right, and understand, yeah. connect. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, no, it's a multifaceted, rich interpretation that has to be quite nuanced, right? Because it, because I, my work in Dharma is about creating inclusivity, mm. right? You know, so it's like getting, making Dharma accessible yeah. for everyone. And, right. and to do that, you have to look at systems, right? Mm-hmm. You can't, yeah, you you can't just do that line by line. You have to really look mm-hmm. at the architectural drawing of the whole situation. Yeah, you can't bypass the relative. Yeah, right. exactly. And like right. it has the the dharma now has to be grounded in the relative, teaching people that we have to go through the relative in order to experience the ultimate. Yeah. You know, that there's no bypassing the yeah, relative, the- which is already a, such an issue right now in convert Buddhist communities. Right. And it's where it's arguably where some of the attempted landing of the of the Tibetan Buddhist teachings and others didn't land the plane because they didn't land all the way in the relative and there was a little bit of a kind of a claw at you know a, a kind of a, a, the perspective from the top of the mountain but now you're in the in, in down in the in the valley oh. and you gotta you gotta bring it out so oh, yeah. some teachers they kept they, they maybe they didn't want to engage that you know well I, I think that you know when buddhism was being you know um you know, kind of planted in Western countries, right? I think it was planted in communities that actually didn't understand collective struggle or collective oppression, Mm -hmm. right? You know, and I would say white affluent communities really were the communities that took the Dharma and started working with it initially because they had access to resources to do that. Well, and to just add one thought, white, affluent, and dropout, having been <laughs> one of those, yeah, yeah. you know, this, it wasn't so much it was lodging into the sort yeah. of established thing. It was There was an anti, there was some kind of counter propulsion into an alternative approach, but it was with people who had been part of that and who had tasted that kind of affluence. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, we, you know, I was there. It's, it's yeah. that's who came. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that was because, uh, you know, you probably have a better idea than I do why th- that's who came. Well, you know, you know, you have to think about systems and accessibility. You know, you we have to think about the ways in which people are restricted from certain experiences, certain spaces. Right. You know, um, and. And I think that was the case. It was just like, you know, I think about Black folks, you know, Black community in general, like there, like there were systematic barriers. That Can you identify, and identify, would those be financial? Would they financial, be? Financial, financial, um, you know, I think cultural, mm-hmm. you know, I think when you're being exposed to a new culture, like that culture doesn't necessarily reflect where you come from, you know? Right. So I would say for me, I would use a personal example here where, you know, when I came into Tibetan Buddhism, I came into a Tibetan monastic space. Like there was nothing there that reflected my life as being black or queer or Southern or anything. I had to displace that 
in order to move into this community to start training. And I think that is such a privilege to be able to do that, you know, but I trained personally, like to be able to move in and out of spaces because I wanted to, to learn what these spaces, you know, you know, had to teach me, you know, so I had to do that work. But again, like, that's not something that is accessible for a lot of Mm -hmm. folks coming out of marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. Is that true today, do you think, or is that shifting? I I think it's still true. And and so you're invested in, in making that not true? Well, and I'm invested in making it not true by actually showing up in my most authentic, you know, expression. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, and of course I've gone through many stages, right, since I became a teacher, but I felt like I wanted to express tantric Buddhism in, in a way that just felt natural. Have you ever thought of writing a sadhana? Well, I've, I've written many practices, absolutely. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, Seth mentioned that you were sort of crafting some new practices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do they, what, you know, I guess I have to look into it a little bit more. I'm curious what shape they take. Are they, mm. do they have a recitation? Are they, mm-hmm. is there anything formal about them? Or, or you know, is there something? Yeah. Oh, that's really. It's, it's, actually, it's actually quite a range. Yeah, it's quite a range. I have formal practices that I've developed. Um, and I'm really interested in this kind of cross lineage, cross tradition um, kind of sadhana practice, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, these days I'm really exploring traditional magic, for instance, and really taking a magic lens and applying it to tantra, because tantra is a magical tra- tradition, yeah. right? But we don't really have that language. Yeah. But I think for me, it's helped me to get clearer about what's happening in the practice. And therefore, I've gotten clearer about how to create practices. Well, really. so, Lamarad, we have all kinds of people you know who watch tune into this so sometimes i'd like to just add a little explanation of something for somebody who may be less familiar Mm -hmm. um so when you say tantra what do you mean by tantra Mm -hmm. when i say tantra i'm I'm speaking about the traditions that have emerged um, out of southeast asia right all Um, of them uh, all of them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all of them centered within you know the practice of indigenous magic would you say shamanism is a tantric uh, kind of yeah yeah tantra isn't also not just limited right to southeast asia but the the spirit of tantra the essence of tantra is actually seen in all indigenous magical traditions you know and can you can you kind of define that a little bit more what is that essence that then the essence it's about actually developing a relationship to the phenomenal world right and learning how to ally with the phenomenal world you know to create change right mm-hmm. to 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 manipulate mm-hmm. the phenomenal world through practice and manipulate it towards what end well it can be any end uh-huh. that's you know magic that's what... is not a good or bad thing it's just this uh-huh. right? that's been you my know? experience with the sh- sh- some of my shaman friends yeah. is that it's clear that there's um uh, not necessarily a bodhisattva as element to it, and it doesn't it usually, it, usually yeah. is, but there's not necessarily that, so that they can sort of, you know, 
uh, use the magic, as you said, in, in a variety of ways? Well, well, I, you know, I think with indigenous magical traditions, I think it's, we can't necessarily apply uh, an ethical framework in the way that we understand ethics, right? Because root magic and, and um, indigenous magic is actually about balance, mm-hmm. right? So if you, well, you can also argue that balance is an ethical <laughs> no expression, but, you know, when we talk specifically about balancing, it's saying that like, we have to kind of suspend what we think is right and wrong and mm-hmm. actually center balancing. And sometimes to balance, we have to engage in things that may not appear to be right in our like ethical framework. But so is there still, still a notion of motive? Like, for example, in the mm-hmm. Buddhist tradition, yeah. there's just such a foundation of motivational intention, uh, alignment with a kind of, um, you know, compassionate oh, approach, yeah. bodhisattva vow, you know. Um, and, you know, I have seen examples of some of those kind of energies being used without that level of refinement of the ground of motivation. Yeah, yeah. And you know. it's still magic. I mean, it's still yeah. like, again, it's not It's not about right mm-hmm. or wrong, mm-hmm. you know. But I'm grounded, right, in the Bodhisattva, yeah. you know, um, intention. Also, I'm also sensitive to balance as well and i'm trying to understand the ethics of balance right you know um so there have been well for instance you move deeper into tantra like you move Mm -hmm. deeper into tibetan rituals which are not actually tall widespread like you actually Mm -hmm. have to be in like serious orthodox training to actually get access to you know to these practices and these practices are really quite challenging. Like if someone mm-hmm. were just to see, even just a practitioner in the lineage were to see some of these things, they would be quite challenged, I think, to say that, oh, this is Buddhism, mm-hmm. you know? But it's not just Buddhism, it's magic, it's indigenous practice, it's ancient yeah. practice that's been so connected to the balancing of the natural phenom- phenomenal world. You know. And how, how do you bridge that to this sort of mm-hmm. um, orientation towards secular, uh, thinking of meditation as secular mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, some people yeah. would not mm-hmm. want to pursue that kind of ritual oh, or absolutely. know about it, but yeah. they might, it, you know, and that's why I asked you if you were creating your own ritual, mm-hmm. because you might be able to create, create a ritual that was more within their capacity to frame oh. it as familiar to them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I have rituals and ceremonies to meet a lot of people where they are, you know, and I don't believe. Oh, that's that powerful. That, that's that so everyone, Yeah. Wow. I mean, I show I I try to meet people where they are. So, like, yeah, I'm a secular mindfulness teacher. Like, I'm in that world. Right. I'm also in tantric ritual and magic as well. And I show up in multiple spaces, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, and I think that comes from. First of all, it comes from this belief that like, or rather a commitment to this idea that I just want people to be happy and resourced, right? It doesn't mean that I want people to be Buddhist. Uh It doesn't necessarily mean that I want people to be meditators. I want people to to have access to the resources that they need Mm. to be well, right? And I want to help people do that. Right. You know, in any ways. And that's why I was in activism and organizing for many years, right? I wanted, yeah. you know, I, I just, I, I just want, I think part of our practice has to be 
about learning how to recognize where people are and yeah. then going to meet people where they are, you know? And I think that is also the expression of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva doesn't ask people to come to where they are. The Bodhisattva goes to where people are, right? And so if it's secular mindfulness, it's great. You know, yeah. I, you know, in a week, I can teach all kinds of things, uh-huh. you know, from deity practice to secular mindfulness to, you know, work on grieving and grief, or I can develop, you know, meditations for the different apps, right, that I'm on, which has a whole wide demographic of people, you know, coming so it in. It sounds like the essence of your communication is formless. That's the yeah. feeling I get. It's essentially mm-hmm. formless. Mm-hmm. And then it's adapting, you know, um, it doesn't sound like you have a particular project even at a certain level. Well, it's it's fluidity, yeah. right? It's, it's having a sense of who I am and what I'm doing mm-hmm. and then being able to flow into the spaces, you know, I need to be in to, to be a benefit, you know, and it's not about me, you know. I don't have to be, you know, I don't have to wear labels to yeah. to move through the world. It's like, you can think whatever you want to of me. You know, there are mm-hmm. people who identify me as all kinds of things, from like a shaman to witch to llama to all kinds of things. And I'm like, okay. And are yeah. they, are any of them like interruptive and vocal and kind of negative? Does that does that happen? Not really, not really. The, the 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 big issue, of course, for me is my centering of justice in the work. That's what actually triggers people. You know, it's such a great word. Yeah, <laughs> you know, justice. It's you know, justice and dharma. You know, which again is about balance. Yeah, right. Justice is about balancing. Right, you know, and how, you know, how that has has really like been a triggering point for a lot of people, you know, because a lot of people don't want to think about injustice, like they just want to be comfortable in their practice, right? Right, and again, if I'm dedicated to the work of the relative, I have to be dedicated to justice and balance and to and to discomfort, exactly. That's where that's where it all shows up, right? It's mm-hmm. like um, I, I think it takes a, a time for people who aren't familiar with like working with a teacher in that way that mm-hmm. it might not be comfortable. Right. It's not Yoda, you know. Yeah, and I think you know I think some of us we come into relationship with teachers and maybe it's kind of romantic, like it feels great. It's just like wonderful, and then I mean it was for me, and then the work begins. Mm. You know, it was just a tough period. It's like, where did the fun go? Where did like these really <laughs> great, sweet experiences, where did they go to? You know, yeah. it's just, no, it, it was the hook. Mm. Like We got hooked. And now it's like, now it's time to really do work. It's really time to practice. And the practicing means that I need to actually go into and deal with the discomfort. And it's lonely too, would you say? Exactly. Exactly. You know, uh, Trunk Rinpoche once said the role of the teacher is to take you up in the plane, yeah. te- teach you how to fly it, and then there's one parachute in the in the plane. <laughs> they take it and jump out. <laughs> and I really yeah. felt that. I feel like there's a lot, of, you know, valence to that. It's um, 
certain spiritual traditions, you know, there's maybe more of a flavor, particularly within the Indian cultural setting of the mom and pop are going to be there with you and kind of nurturing you and take care of you. But um, that that seems to be a difference that, you know, between Buddhist Tantra and other approaches to Tantra to me, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that no, nobody's going to, well, non-theistic, let's say, let's just put it in that, in that context. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's also, it can be quite cultural as well. I think there are different cultures, you know, that are teaching people to be independent, to have agency, you know, and I think a teacher-student relationship and the way that we get it as Westerners is a, is a relationship that we actually have to to study and learn more about because it's not innate. You know, I don't think and it's, it's like and it's not cult, it's not in our culture either. It's not in our culture, right? You know, this isn't something that like we just naturally understand and know. Yeah. So a lot of us enter into you know this future teacher student relationship and we kind of lose agency because mm-hmm. we think, oh, like this person's going to save me. You know, like, because those of us coming out of, like, you know, certain theologies and religions, you know, um, we have these gods, you know, or God in general, <laughs> who's going to save us, right? But you come yeah. into Dharma, it's like, no, you're actually going to save yourself mm-hmm. through developing awareness and compassion, right? Here's this teacher who's reflecting the work back to you, right? But at the end of the day, it's going to be your labor, with yeah. the support of community and teachers. But at the end of the day, it's like, I have to do the practice. Yeah. Right. Well, that's a really, you know, very wonderful expression of non-theism, which is mm-hmm. uh, maybe something that, um, you know, something we went through was the sort of introduction to pantheism and polytheism mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to monotheism. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that Buddhism is is non-theism or or is Tantra sort of pantheistic? What, what do you make of the deities, for example? If somebody asks you, well, who, 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 what, are, what is that all about? Well, you know, I, <laughs> I have you know, a couple of different answers. I, you know, I, I teach about deities every week, you know. Um, and I say, on, you know, I recognize two levels of deities, wisdom deities and worldly deities. And the wisdom deity, you know, is often, you know, the kind of deity that we're working with. And Tantra, like the wisdom deity that arises out of the, the emptiness, you know, and the energy of the universe itself, which is our mind, right? So, like, when we relate to a wisdom deity, we're actually relating to ourselves, you know, our most awakened, you know, compassionate, wise self, right? Um, and that's important, you know, um, in Tantra deity practice. Um, for us to see who we are, so we yeah. have, so we have this map to to guide us deeper into that into that experience, you know. And then the second kind of level of deities, which you know I call worldly deities, are beings like us. They're you know beings with you know ego, but like they have achieved a certain level, you know. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily awakening, but I think there has been this kind of um, awakening of abilities and energies that actually kind of elevate them to a different frequency. So who would you put in that category, for example? Um, I would put in that category, um, I would say a lot of the local deities and gods, you know, that many cultures would worship. 
mm-hmm. you know, would be in that category. Would there um, be any any teachers would be in that category? You know, no, people I think who, teachers would be in sort of a realized human being. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, when you started describing that, I started thinking of the sixteenth Karmapa, yeah, mm-hmm. which was just this is like you're, in, you know, um, did did you ever are you are you uh-huh. too young to have met him or did you meet him? I'm not. No, I didn't meet the sixteenth. Okay, yeah. Karmapa, no. Uh, you know, when you sort of read words like luminosity and yeah. kind of, uh, it was like you would have to be, um, you know, completely obscure to not see it. I mean, everybody yeah. saw it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. and would you say that's part of a, is that a worldly deity in a sense? I would say in a way, yeah. You know, uh-huh. and it's, you know, it always gets a little dangerous, particularly with, you know, beings who are emanating in human bodies to elevate them to the level of God. You know, again, that's another complicated relationship. <laughs> yeah. You know. Um, Tibet- Tibetans have no problem with it, though, right? No, because it, there's a lot of, there's a cultural training and initiation. Right. You know, it's a different orientation around mm. community mm. and self and practice that we haven't, unfortunately, evolved into. You know, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, we're not born in this overt magical world. You know, what I, what I mean by that is like many of us have not been born into a cultural situation where you're being told that the world is full of magic and transformation. You know, that's a worldview that I wasn't born into, but it was present. I've had to fight to actually touch that, mm-hmm. that worldview and starting to embody that through practice. But that wasn't the first lesson that I got. I didn't see that reflected back to me. I saw it reflected to me from movies you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and books, science fiction and fantasy. That's why I... I'm such a consumer, you know, of sci-fi and sci-fi fantasy. Yeah. Because that's how I always thought the world was. I couldn't find evidence of that in my life (laughs) until I got deeper into practice and started being exposed to communities of practitioners who were really doing this work. Yeah. (sighs) Right. And so it's like, we're trying to, Like we, as converts, we come into Dharma from where we were born into, right? Which seems like for me, in my case, it was felt very rigid and fatalistic, uh-huh. right? And so when I came into practice and and was told that, no, that actually the world is quite fluid and magical and rich, like that, that really, in a way, saved my life. Mm. Because I found the world in a way to be unworkable, right? And then when I was exposed to this kind of magic, then the world became workable again. You know, I could use practice to shape the world around me, which is magic, right? You know, I'm shaping the world. I'm shaping phenomenal world. I'm shaping the elements, right? Right, to meet my needs, Right. But in, in of course, in, in Buddhism, we're shaping the world to also benefit people, to get people free, to reduce harm and violence, you know, as well. 
like we have to fight to reclaim magic. I think reclaiming magic is how we're going to survive, mm. you know, the coming years. So, you know, it, it's uh, the last couple of days. I mean, the last couple of years, yeah. really. But the yeah. last couple of days watching those, yeah. uh, you know, the ice melting in Greenland, oh, yeah. watching the, uh, you know, the, the con- congressional hearings, mm-hmm. uh, trying to wrap your mind around the global situation, mm-hmm. um, the heat wave, yeah. w- looking at a map of America on CNN, and it's all red. Yeah. You know, the, 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 anything over 100 degrees was red, yeah. and the entire United States was yeah. looked like it was on fire. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, personally, I feel like there's this, alternation between losing heart and and also being in, strangely inspired to to find this kind of through through a portal that goes through this experience into something um more uplifting for people um more stable yeah uh, more peaceful yeah well you know my ancestors were slaves for centuries and they never gave up you know, and I think for me, ancestor practice has been a foundation for me to give me perspective about what's happening, that there is a way to continue. Mm. There's a way to live through what you may consider hell every day, mm. but you never lose yourself. Like, and what if you if there was a lock and what would the key be, uh, you know, to to not losing? Well, it's you know, it's remembering joy, right? But not just remembering joy; it's remembering the ultimate. Mm-hmm. Like when when we so the so the the risk here is getting swallowed by the relative, right? As I was saying swallowed. earlier, you, swallowed, you swa- consumed, yeah, yeah consumed, consumed into by it. it. Mm-hmm. When you get consumed by the relative, the relative will seem just really rigid. Yeah. Like there's a rigidity to the relative, right? That's why the relative can't be held without it, the ultimate. The it can't be the ultimate. It can't be the ultimate refuge. Even if you tidy yeah. it up, it still can't be the ultimate refuge. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, the relative is an expression of the absolutes. You know, well, that's where that's where we started the inseparability yeah. of the two. When I heard yeah. that talk, you know, it's funny how this is these through through really the good mm-hmm. um, um, auspicious uh, grace. I'm going to use the word of of, of w- being a student with Tonkar Rinpoche. We brought all those teachers over to the United States, yeah. and I didn't have to do anything. They uh, like yeah. uh, you know all these amazing teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Dilko Kensei Rinpoche. Mm-hmm. Come up at 16, mm-hmm. um, you know, are just appearing. Kalu Rinpoche, yeah. uh, you know, Dujem Rinpoche, all appearing in my view scope. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that is, I don't know where people, it's a concern I have being, being now in the older generation of how people could access directly mm-hmm. what is, came about as, as uh, from unreproducible cultural envelope that we can we reproduce a container that is strong enough to to generate that level of training is what i'm really saying yes you know and and i would say i think it's easy for us and i find myself doing this too 
to say that, oh, I had this really great experience and it will never happen again for other generations. You know, it's like Woodstock. <laughs> you know, were you at Woodstock? <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't, but I, I was, uh, you know, very much in the, in the music world at that point. Yeah. And um, did you hear about Woodstock too, though? Yeah. I mean, like on one hand, like you look at Woodstock and you say, oh, there was this amazing thing that happened happened once in a generation yeah. on the other hand it was also a shit show like that yeah. we never talk about but yeah. like that's the kind of like attitude from yeah. people it's like this will never happen again but i think it is happening yeah again yeah. well the word on woodstock too was that there was some really bad antacid going around <laughs> so um <laughs> you know I, I think our you know you have to go with the flow of, of the, of what's happening now. But I, I, I think one of the things that I um, would like to carry forward, uh, which you're totally doing is a complete sense that you hold the teachings. Yeah. You know, it's not, you're not, they're not on loan. Right. You're not a throughput. Right. And that's where lineage can continue to have potency. And right. it, as soon as it becomes like, Oh, I'm just mm -hmm. carrying this, you know, I'm carrying these books from here to there. Right. You're going to lose some of that energetic. So yeah. it's um, it's interesting because you're, you're a rare um, individual in that you have this classical training mm -hmm. and you're a jazz musician, too. You're one of, yeah. you know, I'm a musician, right? Do you know that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So so, you know, very few classical musicians can play jazz. Right. Sure. Isn't that interesting. They have all the training. They know yeah. where all the notes are. Yeah. But, you know, you, you ask a very highly trained classical musician to improvise and you're going to be like you know not yeah because it's you know because jazz is like you know you move and i'm a musician too i haven't done anything in years you know but you know you're asking people to let go well there's it's different ways i can explain this but like it's about form mm -hmm. and i think classical training is about form like this is the form this is what's been done this is tradition and we just have to keep doing it right you know but then you get creative and you say, but what if I played another note or what if I said something differently? Right. Like right. how would people respond to that? Yeah. And that's where like this, when you start riffing, like you, you, know, you start <laughs> improvising and when you're improvising, you're just like collecting data. Like yeah. how does this sound? How are people responding? You know, and did you, did you say you played uh, music? I played, I did. I played and I sang. Yeah, I played. I played saxophone for years, and then I moved more into you know voice work. And do you still sing? Not, not professionally, and not in an organized way. You no. know, um, but I, I'd say the Dharma came along and displaced. <laughs> <laughs> all of that, all of my extra energy went into practice instead yeah. of into the art. But yeah. I know, mean, that's but, one mm -hmm. of the things, you know, that we're trying to do at, at, at Dharma Moon is mm -hmm. give equal weight to mm -hmm. creative expression and Dharma or practice or whatever you want to study and integrating with the, you know, livelihood piece. Well, yeah, that's a big and, ambitious undertaking. And lately I've been saying, okay, those three things picked. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, but, I, but the original idea was, can you do all three? And a lot of young people that we work with are 
built for that integration at this point in time. That's what it feels like to me anyhow. Well, you know, I think the thing about form as it relates to all of this is that we have to, form is something that's so subtle and deeply held, you know, like form is what guides the work for me. Like the form is what keeps everything within the focus of God. Like, but form isn't something that I worship. Mm-hmm. Form isn't like something that I am performing. Right. You know, like form is something that guides the work. And I'm grateful to have had a classical training because I think, you know, we talk about innovation and creativity. I see a lot of people who haven't mastered the basic material, but are skipping to the innovation. Right. And so there's no mastery. Then we have a bunch of teachers, you know, that actually haven't mastered the material that they're teaching, you know, and that's not going to be durable or resilient in the years coming. Right. You know, and I think that, yes, there is such an urgency for change, but you're not going to engage in really effective change until you go through the process of training, right? You know, and I think there are a lot of us who have been training for decades to be in this moment, Mm. like, and across the board, not just spiritual practitioners, but activists and thinkers and writers right now. There are people who who have been training for this moment in the world, right? I those people have to have, to, we have to start taking kind of the leadership, the forefront of the work, right? Because right now, what I keep sensing and seeing is there are a lot of folks who are just freaking out. Yeah, and it's you not know? so hard to do, you know? No, it's really easy. <laughs> it's very inviting. It's, it's like the you party know? started on that account, you know? Yeah, it's like, and, and people have to see they're freaking out as evidence that like, maybe this isn't, like their work right now to lead anything, but to somehow support those of us who have been training to do this, to step up from, there's people who, you know, I follow people and know people personally who are so well-trained for these times, who are so, they're very clear about what the work is, how to organize, how to move forward, how to support people. And I really want those people to have, you know, more of a voice right now. Um, are, are any of those people in the political atmosphere we currently have? Is there anybody that you feel like, wow, that's somebody who's really, uh, you know, holding down the future forward in a positive sense? Anybody like anybody in office or, you know, is there anybody you could point to as a model of what you're talking about who's actually got some kind of power in the temporal world? Yeah, you know, I think there are people whose motivations are really good, their hearts are in the right place. But I think for me, it's, I, you know, I, I come from a place of abolition. And with abolition, it's like, how do we dream a different way of being? Mm-hmm. You know, where we're not depending on a centralized government, you know, because we see how that's going <laughs> for us right now, mm-hmm. you know, with the loss of reproductive rights. Mm-hmm you know, and contraception, maybe, you know, and maybe gay marriage, perhaps. Like, I mean, it's just, 
like how do we start living more locally depending mm-hmm. on the communities around us mm. like to create cultures that really care for people you know and i don't and, know and then that that kind of spreads in some way potentially like the yeah the feeling of that can that's really community and the only thing i was able to come up with this whole time is for, for domoon is the community element is the most important element yeah, to me absolutely gathering people around and and that means everybody's uh, got a say everybody's got to be respected for, with their input um but it's kind of a new you know lately i've been um talking to people about like where the hell did democracy come from in the first place because mm-hmm. it just occurred a light bulb went on recently that some of these countries around the world never had democracy it wasn't even their ideal form of government like what's happening in Russia and Ukraine now. Mm-hmm. Russia was never a democratic. That was not their zeitgeist going into, into the modern world. And um, so we, we pretty much got to, to Greece, yeah. <laughs> which is where you got to get to. Mm-hmm. And then the Greeks had slaves. And, you know, mm-hmm. it was like it was. Um, so this ideal that we hold here that it seems like, oh, everybody should be in a, in, in a democracy doesn't have a lot of legs historically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that we, I think that the, in, in the way that democracy has kind of arisen here in America is a model where many people just feel as if they just vote and everything yeah. will be okay. Like if they just vote for the right person, for the right mm-hmm. party, everything will be okay. And that isn't how we're going to survive. Like, mm-hmm. We have to do more than just votes. Mm. Like we have to be responsible for the people around us. Mm. You know, not just our families and our loved ones, but our neighbors. Mm. Like we have to like start thinking about the welfare of people. You know, I have to think about people having access to healthcare, you know, and livelihoods and food, you know, clothing and shelter. Like I want to be concerned with that. Like, I want to help do that. And I had, I was doing that for all of my 20s, you know, since my teen years and through my 20s before I went into training, you know, at the monastery, you know, I was like, I have to, I have to be a part of people getting access to the resources that they need. Right. And isn't some part of that, though, building a platform, a container in some sense that can (laughs) hold that work? Yeah, you, you build, you know, a sense of community responsibility, community ethics. But also That's some structure, no? I mean, yeah, some you structure, build structure. No? yeah, you build systems, but you build systems that are about fluidity, mm-hmm. right? And, and inclusion, you know, not about power and hierarchy, you know, and people having more than others. It's, it's a kind of like a very like linear experience where everyone gets what they need, you know? That's not what we're living. Do you think in some sense that was the ideology behind communism originally? Well, I think think if we can reduce it to like an idea, like a romanticized idea, yeah. Right. Not that it went that well, you know, exactly. But um, yeah, I mean, these ideas have been floating around of like the, the, and what you're describing has less ego in it that's that seems to me like that's there's just not as much um centering on the individual having power and um control yeah i mean it's it's a centering in compassion like real compassion Mm. 
right? Real compassion, real care for people, you know? So as far not, as, yeah, go, go ahead. But as far as I've gotten with that, the, the evolution of that coupled with actually having real power and potency to implement in the world is a kind of really serious conundrum. Yes. Because they don't seem to really ever get linked properly. Right. Well, I think there are steps that we can move through to really like create that foundation. I think one of the steps is actually, how do we teach people to be emotionally mature? Mm-hmm. Like, where, where's that education happening? <laughs> <laughs> right? Because for me, like in my work, I see a lot of the conflict and violence in the world stemming from our lack of capacity to hold our emotional reality. Mm. to hold emotional energy, right? This is why meditation has been so important for me because it gave me the tools to do that. But I see a lot of folks who are just really struggling with trauma and grief and sadness and despair, right? Um, Who are deeply hurt and who are experiencing deep, intense rage and anger, who are also at the same time holding a lot of power to shape the lives of many people. You know, like, how can we create, and as Dr. King said this, beloved community, how do you create a beloved community mm-hmm. when we actually don't know how to care for ourselves? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and of course, there's going to be hierarchies, right? You know, um, like we, you know, the colonization of America meant the genocide, displacement and genocide of indigenous communities, native communities. You know, and indigenous cultures have always been so deeply tied to the health of the earth, of the mm-hmm. land, living living in allyship and union with the with the natural world, right? And we're so far away from that right now. How do we possibly develop and create systems of care for ourselves when we can't even actually reconnect or connect to the earth? in the natural world again we're always you know um you know we paved over paradise (laughs) (laughs) right and that's this idea of what a good life is like we're just going to pave over everything yeah you know and use the magic of technology Mm -hmm. right to manipulate the phenomenal world to at the expense of everything and everyone we're doing that are, are you working on a new book now? I am. I feel it coming through. <laughs> it's coming through. <laughs> yeah. Is it about this? It is about really how to be good. Right. That's it's a re- great title, by the way. And you're talking to a professional songwriter here. Well, That's a, well, how to be good is a great title. Well, it's not my title. But it's about, you know, somebody, it's, it's not the title of your new book. The title of the new book is actually New Saints. New Saints. That's yeah, cool it's a too. reinterpretation yeah. of the Bodhisattva tradition. New Saints. That's good. Yeah, and so it's 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 about. I told a friend I'm just kind of revisioning Dharma within 300 pages, um, and really, it's you know, I see a lot of people trying to do really good work mm-hmm. in the world, but it's not really the work that needs to be done. Is very performative. Mm. You know, it's like, I'm just going to vote. I'm just going to like post the Black Lives Matter post on my Instagram account. And that's Mm -hmm. what I'm doing. And what I'm arguing, the book is actually need to do more. Mm -hmm. 
than the performative. We need to do more than what's easy. We have to do the steep emotional labor. Yeah. I call the work, right? And of course, grounding in the Bodhisattva tradition, which says that like, we're trying to get free in order to free other people. And so I'm talking about how I understand the Bodhisattva, the contemporary Bodhisattva as a new saint. And this is, these are the aesthetics, the, the framework of the new saints. Is there a sub- the subtitle to the book? Subtitle? Um, I There is a subtitle. I always forget it, though. It's actually, it's always in, you know, um, it's always changing. Actually, yeah, that's yeah. I can never remember. Yeah. Um, but it's, yes, how to, it's essentially, it's going to be something like how to be good and in a world in a chaotic world this, that's the gist it's going to be the gist of the subtitle you have to you have to be good to do good well you have to you have to you have to earn goodness goodness is yeah. something like one of the arguments that i say making the book which i made in love and rage as well is that like i'm not a good person mm-hmm. like i had to give up that that idea of being a good person instead i'm someone who's trying to 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 practice goodness in each moment. Like, and when I say practice goodness, I'm trying to reduce harm and violence to myself and others, right? I'm trying to do what is conducive to, you know, ultimate liberation and enlightenment. Is the, are you almost finished? It sounds like you're close to finish. I'm, I'm close, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Do you like writing? I do. I do like writing. I'm not a disciplined writer. Uh-huh. I do enjoy writing. Yeah. So maybe it's coming out next year? Yes. In 2023? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are you super busy these days? Are you traveling in the current environment or mostly online? Where, where, I, where am, I am slowly beginning to travel again. Yeah. Um, I've done some traveling. I've spent some time in the UK. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Teaching earlier this year in the spring. Um and um, I'm beginning to do in-person retreats again. I have two coming up, um, three uh, coming wh- up. Actually, wh- when, when and where are they, would you like so to I'll, say? Ne- next month, I'll be teaching up at Wonderwell. That's Lama Miller, Lama Willa Baker's um, retreat center up in New Hampshire. Okay. I'll be there the third weekend in August. Um, and then I teach a yearly retreat at Southern Dharma. In North Carolina, that will be, I think, the second weekend in December. In December, mm-hmm. up in the mountains. Okay. Yeah. All right. Wow. Well, we'll we'll uh, send people. Is your website a good place to send people to Absolutely. find out more? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this was so lovely. Is the word I want to use to to get to know you a little bit. Um, and 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 um, uh, I really appreciate the whole. You know, I think there's a, a magical link if the classical training and then the really meeting the time. Um, and, and you're absolutely one of the people I've spoken to that is positioned to really bring the yin with the yang, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've really enjoyed the conversation so much. And um, thank you. No, thank you. I really appreciate this. Yeah. All right. So to be continued. There you have it, folks. Episode number 37 of the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast on the Be Here Now Network. Featuring Lama Rod Owens, 
We are very grateful that Lama Rod took the time to be with us here on the podcast, and we sincerely hope that everyone has enjoyed this podcast as much as we've enjoyed making it. I know personally, it's very meaningful for me to hear uh, David and Lama Rod in discussion talking about these things, and I got a lot out of it. That podcast was only an hour long, you know, um, and there was so much in there, very rich. So, thank you for listening. Um, please follow Lama Rod on Instagram, go to his website, sign up for his newsletter. He's an important voice. And uh, head over to dharmamoon.com, check out all of our programming. We have some info sessions coming up. And be sure to head over to BeHereNowNetwork.com to see all the amazing podcasts and hear the amazing podcasts. And that's it for this episode. Sometimes you love things so much you don't want to let go, but I'm going to have to hit the space bar here in a moment. Um, So we sincerely wish that you all be safe, healthy, happy, and at ease, and that this podcast is of benefit. And we sincerely appreciate you all. All the best. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.